Welcome to the Economics Explained podcast. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. This episode explores the economics of the film industry, the movie business. What affects the return on investment in films? Should governments subsidise film productions as they do in Australia? For instance, a couple of years ago, the Australian government gave the Aquaman film production a $22 million grant. In this episode, I discuss these and other issues with my good friend Tim Hughes, who spent 10 years working in the film industry in the UK and Australia. Tim's a Brisbane-based businessman who's had a range of ventures over the years. His latest business is Urban Ergo, a distributor of human-scale ergonomic products which improve health and comfort at work. Despite his change of career, which he talks about in the interview, Tim has never lost his passion for the film industry. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Tim Hughes, welcome to the podcast. Gene Tony, thank you for having me. Very good. Tim, today we're going to be talking about the economics of the film industry and I thought it would be good to begin with you giving us an overview of your experience in the film industry, please. Yeah, sure. Um, I had about uh, 10 years or so in the, uh, in the film industry, which I thoroughly enjoyed. So from sort of um, mid to late 90s to mid to late 2000s, uh, started in England uh, just as a uh, production runner. So I started on the bottom rung um, and uh, got to work on local productions uh, in the UK um, uh, before coming back to Australia to get married and, uh, and working on the Gold Coast. So, yeah, I had a, had a nice experience of, uh, of the two different countries. What were the productions in the UK that you worked on? So I started off uh, like... Um, in, the, in Derbyshire, where I grew up, there is not a renowned filming place. However, for locations, I mean, people do go in there and, and shoot certain things, but for ongoing work, there's not a lot there. Um, uh, however, I, was, uh, I caught the tail end of Peak Practice, which was um, a medical show um, filmed close to where I lived, and so I was lucky enough to get a start on that. So it was very um, traditional um, filming, so one, possibly two cameras, and um, uh, shot on film, so quite expensive to do, but it was really good to see the full process before everything went fully digital um, as to how it all happened. So that was my first show over there and then worked on a, um, a handful of others, did a little bit on The Bill, uh, a little bit on Coronation Street. And uh, uh, my first film over there was A Room for Romeo Brass, um, which I was just a driver uh, on that one, but... Uh, was great. Got to see um, Shane Meadows in action, who's a really cool director, and uh, see a low-budget film get made in a, in a very quick period of time. Uh, it was only a six-week shoot, and uh, it was yeah, it was that was a, that was a real eye-opener. And, and actually, and so following up from that, the last thing I worked on was Tomb Raider, the first Tomb Raider, uh, just for a week, just for the first week. Uh, and that was a great eye-opener on the other way because it was a big-budget film. And the whole week that we were there, most of the stuff that got shot didn't even end up in the film. It's that kind, oh. of, uh, that kind of budget. And it was expensive stuff being shot around Battersea Power Station. 
and uh, so that was that was also a great eye opener. And then coming to Australia and being lucky enough to work on um, some productions over here, uh, got to see um, the the full scale of different budget shoots over here as well. Okay. What I find interesting about your experience is you worked on the Gold Coast and you've worked in the film industry that we've been trying to promote here yeah. in Queensland. And I find that interesting because I've at, you know, been a long-time critic of government assistance. So I've heard, the, Gene, so I've heard. Government <laughs> to the film industry. We'll, we'll come to that later. Um, so what, what productions did you work on here in the Gold Coast? Um, so the first thing I worked on uh, when I came back in 2000 so it would have been 2001 uh was scooby-doo um so um lucky enough to get a start on that as an additional ad so i worked as an an assistant director which is um it sounds very fancy but you do a lot of running around in the ad department uh in the lower rungs you're basically uh communications between the different departments um so you're making sure everybody knows what's going on so you, you're very much a conduit from the powers above as to what's happening next what's needed now etc um, and you're heavily involved with um, extras and putting them through the the processes they need to go through and then when when it's shooting making sure everyone shuts up you know so there's you're involved in all the different departments which is really good and uh, you get to see a lot of different things so that was cool okay now, you mentioned you've worked on a range of productions and some small budget, some yeah. big budget. Are there any rules or any uh, any rules of thumb around what works in, in a film? I mean, what sort of budget should we be aiming for? Or yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's such a massive... Um uh, a, a massive question. It's it's a good one, uh, and the, there isn't an answer basically, um, and that was that is what makes the film industry so interesting. I think is that you can be formulaic, and there's a lot of formula out there for story, and has been for a long time before film. But you'll get um, franchises that go through certain expected arcs and storylines, etc. But no one's absolutely certain. You, you can't be sure if you're going to do well or not. And there's been a lot of massive budget flops and many more, of course, low-budget flops, you know. So um, the ones that do make it can't always be copied either. You know, there's, there's these elusive elements in them that make them... And maybe it's a timing thing, like Crocodile Dundee, for instance. I think a big part of that was probably the timing now, a talent like Paul Hogan, like he's, he's a natural. So all those sort of elements that come together, uh, John Cornell uh, being involved and the production values of that were really good, you know, compared to, you know, some other content that's been made before or since. And that comes over, you know, the, the audience knows when something's good or not. And, and that can sometimes be quite an elusive element. Mm. So as a director or, or in someone on the production team, what are you aiming to do? I know there's that, that expression you've used when we've chatted before. You mentioned you want to see the money on the screen. So what yeah, do you mean exactly by that? I think So, for instance, if there's a budget, um, say, say for argument's sake, it's a low-budget film, you've got a million dollars, you want that million dollars to end up on the screen. So, you know, in... In very basic terms, if you were to spend that all on a, a, an awesome caterer and put up the crew in a nice hotel and everything, then all that money isn't going to end up looking good on the screen. You're not going to notice it. 
Um, whereas uh, th- that's the idea, and that's the producer, the producer's job, I guess, and everybody else um, in the production team to try and make sure that whatever money they do get together that it actually looks like a million dollar film or ideally it looks like a 10 million dollar film that cost a million bucks so that's that's where that term comes from and it's a it's a strong one because i mean there are you know you hear stories of like massive wastes of money that that can happen um but usually so for instance with a film like tomb raider uh using that uh, example of all that footage that was cut and you could look back and see well why wasn't that sorted out in the writing stage? You know, if it wasn't necessary, could that not have been picked up earlier? And it's, it's been fascinating to see things like that change through a production where you'd think it'd be all locked in. And some of them are, but a lot of them aren't where, um, the, the final edit can be quite a different film to, um, you know, well, there's a very, there's a lot of different variations as to how the final film can come out. You know, they might even try different endings and things like that with, um, with audiences to see what the reaction is. And so you hear of these things and it, 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 uh, it's, it's an encouraging thing because it shows that the creative process is uh, a living thing. You know, it's not just, okay, this is what we're going to shoot and we just follow that. I know that uh, uh, George Lucas is famous for having his film storyboarded and you shoot the storyboards. And so they obviously work. I mean, he's a very successful filmmaker, but you can put that down to good planning, great vision, etc. And not everybody has that, you know. So mm-hmm. a lot of films are just looser. And um, uh, that's kind of good in many ways, but, you know, kind of scary in other ways if you're a producer. What I find interesting about George Lucas is that he's gone back and edited some of his previous films. And, right. and he hasn't always been, uh, well, not all of his films have been uh, a class or a grade so the i mean people have been highly critical of those prequels to the star wars you know uh series uh, for example um so he he's someone who doesn't always get it right uh and i remember there's that great quote from i think it's william goldman is he the great screenwriter and he said nobody knows anything i mean no one's really sure what works it's yeah quite extraordinary uh, yeah uh, and and it's it's encouraging because um you know, and there are definitely formulas and, you know, the, the three, uh, you know, going back to Shakespeare's time, you know, the, the different stages of the story as you go through uh, the different acts, you know, act one, act two, act three, um, and variations on it. And so that's definitely used nowadays. You still see that still with all the, um, the superhero films. Um, but Marvel have been very clever that they, they still add in human elements to, you know, include people in those films a little bit more humor a little bit more nuance with character no failings of 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 superheroes you know which i mean i think the comics have done that really well to sort of um show the humanity in these superheroes and that's been hugely successful undoubtedly but you know you get people like tarantino who come across with these really unique films and it's great that people like him thrive and and do well because that to me is what makes you know the film world so interesting is you can ultimately do if you can get backing you can do whatever you want and uh and that's uh, uh it's there's less um risks being taken at the moment i think certainly from the big studios you either get the very big budget films or you get the the low budget films but not much in between and so you know it's just supply and demand as well so they're responding to that but ultimately, it um, you know I think it's great when you see these films that come out, which are really challenging 
like the lobster and stuff like that, which is, you know, like it's it's bizarre, but it's awesome at the same time. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Have you seen that? No, not yet. You should check it out. Okay. Yeah. I'll check it out. I was just thinking you're talking about the, you know, you need to manage your costs of production. To what extent do you are your costs blown out by the demands of the talent? I mean, we all see these stories in the gossip mags about all these demanding stars and, you know, how they all they need particular types of M&Ms in their their trailers and all of that and, I don't know, probably Bollinger Champagne or whatever. So, I mean, I know you've worked with some big stars in the the past. I mean, is that one of the issues you have to deal with, managing the expectations of the talent? Uh, I mean, I'm sure that, I mean, there are so many stories along those lines and in in most cases, like... I don't know. I mean, like everyone's pretty normal uh, when it comes down to it. And so, you know, if you kick up a, a fuss as a, as an actor, like you know, producers aren't really going to work with want to work with you too much again. So, even the big names have got to sort themselves out, you know, or they're so big they make their own stuff, but they generally don't get that good and be, you know, um, hard to work with at the same time. I don't know. I don't have too many stories anyway. I'm sure other people do. Um, I do remember working one of the best um things um i did in film uh, was the opportunity to work on scooby-doo we had two weeks at on tangaluma island mm. or tangaluma resort on morton island which was just the best fun because there was no travel so at knockoff everyone just went to the bar and had a great time um and there were a lot of extras over there so that was a lot of fun and i know that there was um half a day that we lost a filming because uh, sarah michelle geller and um Freddie Prince Jr. refused to come out of their room because they'd heard there was um, some kind of um, press photographer that was not supposed to be on the island, who was on the island, who was taking um, unsolicited shots. And so th- and that was a massive thing because like, the whole crew was standing around for half a day. And that's uh, I, I don't know how much money was lost. There were different figures that were bandied around, but it was expensive. So... And again, I don't know the inside story of what was said around that, but that wouldn't have gone down too well, for sure. At the same time, you can probably understand it because if you're big stars like that, I mean, there's so much attention on you and there must be issues. You're concerned about your security. They've probably had issues in the past with, you know, overzealous fans or paparazzi, you know, taking photos of them. And you know, Yeah, I mean, I don't know that the, there'd be other people who would know more about that. I mean, certainly as security goes, it was safe, um, but... I, th- I mean, all I heard was, uh, and this is um, hearsay, and I didn't go into f- any further into it, so it's it's not breaking news. Um, but it was just that they um, they didn't want uh, pictures taken that were, you know, unsolicited. And I, I don't know. I mean, like, if you're an actor, you're going to have your picture taken. So uh, exactly, yeah. I won't I won't comment too much more on that. No, no. no. <laughs> but you've worked on another major production here in Southeast Queensland. I know you worked on swimming upstream which was filmed not yeah. far from where we're recording this interview in spring hill at yeah. the spring hill baths about the flying fingletons was it it was um anthony fingleton uh, tony fingleton and um the fingleton family and uh that was uh that was uh that was really cool um i was lucky to work with uh, the first ad and second ad from lord of the rings um which i was a massive fa- fan of um the first edition had just come out the first um uh, chapter uh, Fellowship of the Ring had just come out and so I missed the opportunity to, to work directly on that um, but it was lucky enough to work with uh, Cara Cunningham as the first AD and uh, Guy Campbell as the second 
uh, on what was essentially a, sh- a small film. It was a, a low budget film. Um, and uh, it was great. It was, uh, that was just a few weeks as well. It was very quick. And the, the actors weren't announced until very close to shooting. Uh, so it obviously been in the pipeline, but it was, it was not confirmed. Um, and then they came up with Jeffrey Rush and Judy Davis, which was just fantastic. You know, so yeah, and, and it was just, uh, it was very lucky, you know, in the right place at the right time. Uh, very lucky to be able to work on a smaller, more intimate film with um, crew and cast like that uh, than those big productions where you're sort of a very small cog in a very big machine. The smaller productions are great because, yeah, there's uh, the smaller crews. It is more intimate, generally quicker. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Good. One of the things I wanted to explore a bit more is the return on investment and you mentioned tarantino before and i mean i think tarantino is a good example of someone who's managed to get that return on investment i mean he's someone with such a deep knowledge of of movies what's come before and he's got a deep knowledge of the culture and he's able to bring that into his movies and he's also found stars that are not quite you know they're not the big names that they once were yeah well they're not your your leading actors and he's resurrected them he's seen the value in them and that he can you know bring them back like i suppose harvey Keitel, he recognized steve bashimi as a great talent yeah john travolta uh in uh, pulp fiction bruce willis i suppose um i mean he's someone who's able to yeah he's figured out how we can you know produce a great film and get that return on investment later on he had much bigger budgets but generally i mean what are the elements to i mean if you were trying to you know make it in the film industry i mean is it okay to start off with a low budget and if so what elements should you be focusing on if you want to make a successful film well that's uh <laughs> that's a big question i mean and and i can only give my opinion because there is no answer um to that but i think uh it is that thing of like, um, at the end of the day, it comes down to a good story. And so if you can tell a good story well, uh, for instance, I mean, the, the reason I got into uh, the film industry when I did um, was it was the first time I'd made a conscious choice to do something that I was interested in rather than just doing what work came along. I was a, I used to travel a lot and just earn money, you know, doing builder's labor or bar work or whatever, whatever I could do at the time uh, to get to the next place. And so this was... I had a business with uh, two of my brothers um, in North Sydney, a photocopy centre. And by the end of that uh, time, I decided that I wanted to work in the film industry because I loved the feeling of being affected by a good film. And so, you know, that um, that feeling you get when you're still thinking and talking about a film a couple of days after seeing it, I thought was um, something I'd like to get involved in. So if you can... If you can uh, be part of a film that has that impact on people, um, I think that is, well, certainly that for me, that was the draw card. And to, re- to reproduce those kind of films is, is difficult. You know, there aren't that many films that get made that can uh, have a huge impact on you, you know, which is good in some ways as well, because, you know, it's not easy to do. So when they do come along, they're very special. And of course, it's different for different people. Yes. I think you're almost hinting at that... Uh well, is it cyclical or it's intermittent, isn't it, the work in the the film industry? And so one of the reasons yeah. I've been critical of governments providing financial incentives or 
payroll tax holidays or special tax concessions such as the the location offset uh, whatever it's called Nash, uh, federally one of the reasons i've been critical is i don't think that it's a a stable permanent industry i'm concerned that a lot of the jobs that are created are temporary is that a concern with the film industry yeah well i mean i only had um like a a decade or so in the industry so just from my experience and i think it's fairly um fairly well regarded that it's it's always up and down um and i think uh, i don't know how stable any film industry is in any country like obviously it's very well established in certain countries like america you know france and the uk and australia like you know there's um, uh, such a, a wealthy history of uh, cinema and tv in in um certainly in uh, australia and the uk in, you know that i've had experience of but it goes up and down depending on uh, the tax breaks, you know, the, the economic situation has a huge impact on it. And so the reality for someone working in a crew like myself at that time, uh, yeah, if, if there was money coming in, like the, the American productions that came in, like Scooby-Doo, they need more crew, etc. So it's a very difficult thing to um, remain stable. So it's a bit of feast and famine. And Australia's got a great reputation for skilled crew, you know, which isn't always the case. You can't always get a skilled crew going on location in different parts of the world unless you take them all with you and it's very expensive. So, um, And what sort of crew are we talking about? We're talking about uh, uh, fil- the people behind the cameras, the audio people? Yeah, I mean, you get the HODs uh, in the different departments and, um, you know, that each department is uh, sort of its own little thing and then it, it works cohesively together you know on set and then you've got the production team around it like it's a massive it's a massive effort to get a film made and australia's really well set up for it but there are always going to be times when there's more work and less work so you know the big grips who would then you know do painting in between jobs or uh or they you know if they can if they're fully employed which some of them are like you know they'll go from gig to gig it's great you know some guys do that um others don't and and you have to be able to do something in between and at some point people can get tired of that and and drift away when i um stopped working it was when we started having kids and it was i didn't want to be away 80 hours a week and the work was starting to go down to melbourne at that particular time i didn't really want to do that and so i started to look at different things i could i could do and so drifted away from it i never lost interest in it but you know that's the reality i'm sure for a lot of people is that you know to sustain work in it you, you really uh, have to dedicate yourself to it and i, I didn't feel i could yes. continue it you know like uh, with with kids that's understandable one of the factors i've noticed influences a number of international productions made in australia is the australian dollar the exchange rate yeah and so one of the reasons the you know, we had that pick up in the late 90s and early 2000s, which is, I think, when Scooby-Doo was made in Australia. Yeah, 2001. Uh, yes, memory, yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, our exchange rate got down to, what, 50 US cents or something. It was, yeah, right. And so we became a much more attractive location. Yeah. But then when we had the, the first phase of the mining boom uh, from about 2004 through the financial crisis and our exchange rate, you know, well, our, the Australian dollar just, you know, went up to over you know a dollar us or whatever it was yeah right uh that meant we weren't as competitive so a lot does depend upon the exchange rate and now that that's uh you know the australian dollars come off a bit and it's uh you know that makes uh 
film productions a bit more attractive. And so we've seen a bit more interest. We've seen, well, we've had Aquaman in the last few years, yeah, Adora yeah. the Explorer movie. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I mean, the one thing that always outrages me is that we're providing these tax incentives, yeah. you know, can, which can amount to millions of dollars to these productions and it's we're arguing well we the government argues well we need that to provide promote jobs and keep you know all these people in the industry and in post-production employed and, and i've always been a bit a uh, bit skeptical of of those arguments and I've, I've never understood well why are we helping out you know big multinational companies like disney and yeah, uh, yeah. you know companies which are making you know huge profits hundreds of billions of dollars and well, i just can't understand it what I'm interested in is, you know, as someone who has been in the industry, what are your thoughts on whether some sort of government assistance should be provided, whether that's a tax incentive or whether it's, well, the Queensland government built a $14 million soundstage for Village Roadshow. They argued it. Yeah. They needed it for the Commonwealth Games, but then they just gave it to the studio there. Do you think it's uh, sensible to provide support for the industry? Do you think that if there is support, it, it should be in a particular form. I'd be interested in your thoughts on in, that. In a word, yes, um, but I understand your concerns and um, you know, I think any industry, if it's being propped up, it needs to be uh, at some point, you know, um, propped up less, you know. So, I mean, so in saying yes, what, what I really would um, love to see happen is more uh, encouragement for local content to be made. So with the... With, with those big productions coming in from America, I get it. And, you know, it might look bad from the outside, you know, like uh, another industry, like the car industry, uh, for instance, that's getting propped up that isn't profitable, that doesn't give enough back. And also if the profits are going overseas, you know, to another company, uh, I, I get that that's a concern. The, the Those big productions that come over give a, a different skill set or that they um, provide an opportunity for people like myself when I was working uh, in the industry to sort of see these massive machines, um, how they, how they you know, operate, because it is different to a small budget film and you get different experience on every single thing you work on. There's something different about every one, which is, um, which is so cool. Um, but certainly those big productions, um, bring something different to the skill set. And once one's been in, one's been in, then, I think that's more likely to encourage another one because the producers are looking for local um, skilled crew. And so Australia has that in abundance. And, uh, and so definitely you want to maintain that, you know, because if there's, you know, you can lose people uh, from this industry. And it's, Australia's uh, a fantastic place to film. Um, and so what I would like to see is that, yeah, if it's propped up, that's great. But more importantly, try and uh, encourage um, local content to be made that's a little bit more consistent. And so, for instance, um, with streaming being so prevalent now, all these big streaming services um, are, uh, are doing all of this different content. The I understand, um, and I'm not an expert on this, but I understand that the free-to-air stations are obliged to make a certain amount of um, uh, local content. I think it's 10%. I may, I may or may not be right about that, uh, where, whereas the streaming services don't have that. And so all of us who've got Netflix or Stan or Prime or whatever it is, those subscriptions, part of that should be coming back to promoting local content. So that is 
hands down uh, something that should be happening. And in, just that in, in itself would be a huge boost to the local industry. And uh, that would be a, a bigger boost instead of handouts necessarily. That would be a massive boost to the continuity of good local content being made. Yes, I think there's more of a legitimate argument to argue that it's more legitimate to argue that government assistance should be there to promote local content. I can understand that there yeah. could be a benefit to the culture. To yeah. we're telling stories about Australians, and I think uh, it might have been Kate Blanchett and and some of her colleagues who were lobbying for that or lobbying Netflix uh, to do you know to provide more local content uh, so I think that's definitely there was a contingent that went down to Canberra uh, I think it was last year or earlier this yes, year yes yes that's right and I'm just thinking back to that golden age we had a golden age of filmmaking in Australia with that South I think it was the South Australian Film Corporation back in the 70s and early 80s and we had those great films such as uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock yeah Walkabout yeah Storm yeah. Boy and uh, the one with Jack Thompson out on the Sunday, sheep station. Sunday, Sunday too, too far, far away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, yeah. And I don't think we've ever we've had anything really uh, of that quality. Although I guess Strictly Ballroom was very good. Priscilla back yeah. in the in the early nineties. We need more more movies like that and and unique films. I mean, uh, you know, Baz Luhrmann is. Um such a courageous filmmaker. I mean, I love that. You know, not everyone's going to like it, um, but uh, it's um, you know, it's like uh, Muriel's Wedding, PJ Hogan. You know, like it's it's a courageous film to make um, because it's hit and miss. Uh, that, you know, you can't be sure that that's going to be received well. Uh, so I, I love that those films get made. And you know, Milan Rouge. I don't know what the figures were on that, um, but I know a lot of people were very challenged by it. You know. Um, it was it was not what was expected to a lot of people, but I, I love that you know uh, the producers and the director and, and the whole production team had the courage to do it. You know because it takes courage to put yourself out there, and I admire that. You know, like if somebody gets shot down in flames, you know I admire that they gave it a shot rather than just doing something mediocre. And mediocrity is the enemy in any uh, creative um, industry, I think. Absolutely. I think, I mean, Baz Luhrmann's a great example of a director with a particular style, with a particular point of view, yeah, similar yeah. to, say, Brian De Palma or, or some of the other great directors uh, that we've seen in uh, in recent years or recent decades. So I think he's a really good example of that. Yeah. And to be encouraged, and this is the thing, I think, um, where, um, you know, safety isn't always a good thing. Um, sometimes the lower budgets, uh, lower budget films are, are an opportunity to take that chance to do something a little different. And, um, and certainly it would be great if that could be encouraged, you know, like a small business, you know, treat these little projects like a small business and to give them that little bit of, uh, encouragement financially, um, and in whatever breaks that can be given. And I'm certain that with with the right encouragement, uh, and you know, there's so many different places in in Australia that are doing this already, and they should be supported. You know, the the Screen Australia, Screen, you know, uh, all all the different government um, yes. sort of programs that are going on already. But a bit more, a bit more, like you know, keep them keep them going. And if there's if there's money to be uh, legitimately um, taken from streaming services, uh, services, then that should be done. You know that they should contribute towards this because we're, you know, uh, subscribing to their services, and it's only fair that they 
they contribute to the local industry. Okay. Let's pick up some of these policy issues in a future episode. I'd love to chat with you again, Tim. I think this has been great. Yeah, no, thanks. I know we, we talk about different things. And I know we've, we've got many more to talk about. I think I might have not answered a lot of your questions. <laughs> I think they were challenging questions. I think there's, they're questions that, are, uh, that you really can't answer. Nobody knows anything. Well, yeah, and I know that we've talked about um, – uh, so I can talk from my experiences and I know that there's a lot of people out there with um, uh, with a lot more knowledge in those different areas that we've talked about. So, yeah, looking forward to talking more about that. We'll get them on the podcast. <laughs> okay. Thanks for that, Tim. I've really enjoyed it and we'll uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, mate. No worries.